Our Bibles are open this morning to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 6 today. It's page 141 in your pew Bible if you need one this morning. I'm going to talk for a few minutes about faithfulness as the people of God, specifically the marks of covenant faithfulness. Before we get into our message this morning, let me just say that in just a few moments we'll be taking the Lord's Supper, and hopefully everybody picked up by Lord's Supper K-Cup, extra bold this morning, amen, and uh, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. If you haven't, uh, you may discreetly want to get one a little bit later on, maybe when we're wrapping our preaching time up this morning. We look forward to that here in the next few minutes. Uh, a few days ago, uh, tens of thousands of Americans uh, were given a surprise treat when uh, it was announced that those who held student loans would see much of that forgiven. I've never had a loan forgiven before, uh, but it's got to be a pretty amazing thing to know that you owed a lot of money one minute and the next minute you don't. Now, I'm not raising that as an issue this morning to wax politically. A lot of people are very upset about that, and a lot of people have been throwing a party. Amen. It all depends on what your perspective is. My point for bringing it up is to simply say that when you have been on the receiving end of grace, whether it's from another human being or from God himself, it is critical that we learn to respond rightly to that kind of grace. And a right response always means a change of behavior, doesn't it? The worst thing in the world for somebody that was loaded up with debt only to have a bunch of it forgiven would be to turn right around and get in the same kind of mess again. I had a colleague several years ago joined our staff and he brought with him a load of personal and family debt. Much of it was student debt related. And one of our retired folks knew about that and realized it was a sizable amount that they probably would take decades to get out from under if they ever got out from under it. And this wonderful personality made a decision he was just going to pay for all of that. And he did. What a marvelous gift, would you say amen this morning? Uh, uh, the thing about that was within about six weeks, uh, that colleague of mine went out and bought a brand new jet black sports car. In the name of Jesus Christ, I'm sure. He thought he needed it. Man, there was a lot of walking on eggshells for a long time after that. When grace is given, there should always be a right response to grace. Now, that's especially true in the kingdom of God, isn't it? See, the truth be told, all of us in here have been the beneficiary of God the Father eradicating a debt that we could never pay. Isn't that right? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And let me just say this this morning. In the kingdom of God, when you've been blessed with something that you don't deserve, and we all have, the right response is always a faithful response. You get in on the goodness of God 
And as Paul said, you make it your goal to please God, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. You resolve not to go back to the old ways, as it were, to walk in newness of life. This was Israel's challenge as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You all know that God had graciously delivered them from bondage. That was a grace gift. God brought them out in order to bring them in. And he'd graciously not only given them the gift of deliverance, he'd graciously given them the gift of the law, which was meant as a gift. Now, the law couldn't save them. The law couldn't give them righteousness. The law couldn't make them right with God. But what a marvelous gift to be given a guidebook, to know how to walk and to know how to live in order to please God, to know how to live in order to bring about the blessings of God. Their ancestors had received those gifts and they'd squandered them. They kept repeating the same mistakes over and over again, committing the same bad habits. And Moses in the book of Deuteronomy is trying to break the second generation from making those same bad habits like their forebears did over and over and over again. Now, you should know by now that in the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy, one chapter earlier than where we are today, Moses has repeated the gift of the Ten Commandments. And having done so, he turns now in chapter 6 to an extended discussion of what the people were supposed to do in light of the law of God. What are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to live in light of this unmerited, undeserved grace gift called the law? He wants them to know there is a responsibility that comes with being on the receiving end of the grace of God. You don't just receive the grace of God and high-five the Lord and go on about your business as if nothing has changed. Man, the grace of God ought to bring a cataclysmic reorientation to your life that radically changes the way you live. We have a responsibility under grace. And that responsibility in a word is what we might call faithfulness. Faithfulness measured in three dimensions that I want to share with you this morning. First of all, faithfulness, covenant faithfulness, means that we, first of all, obey God completely. That's a right response to the grace of God. Receiving the gift of the law of God and then committing to live by it. And this, of course, is a key theme in Deuteronomy. We talked about it a little bit last week uh, from our text in chapter 10, this critical nature of obedience over and over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. You have these encouragements to obey to the letter, I might add, too, not occasionally, not casually, uh, but consistently, obeying God completely. In fact, obedience, remember, is the primary public sign that you belong to God. Not baptism, important sign though baptism is. Not circumcision, important sign circumcision was to the old covenant people of God. Those aren't the primary signs you belong to God. The primary signs you belong to God involve obedience. That's the chief identifying mark of what Moses called a circumcised what? A circumcised heart. How do you know that your heart's been circumcised? Obedience is the primary determining uh, and objective sign. So it shouldn't surprise you that on the heels of this restating of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, 
We turn the page to chapter 6, and right out of the gate, Moses starts talking about what? Obedience. Here's the law. Here's what you're to do with the law. Obey it completely. Check it out in verse number 1 of chapter 6. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land. Did you see that? Say amen. That you may what? Do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping how many? All his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to what? Do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, of course, this passage of Scripture once again highlights this critical connection between knowing the law of God and doing the law of God. And the two are always connected together in Scripture. <clears throat> Moses has, for the second time, taken the people through this list of the Ten Commandments as the very centerpiece, the heart of God's moral law. And then Moses, as he frequently does, reminds the people that the commands aren't so much to be displayed we often talk about displaying the Ten Commandments, and there's nothing wrong with displaying the Ten Commandments. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But fundamentally, the commands aren't so much to be displayed as they are to be obeyed, right? That's the principal idea here. And the way that you primarily display the Ten Commandments is through obeying the Ten Commandments. This is the commandment that you may do them in the land keeping all his statutes and his commandments all the days of your life. If you were here last week, we were in chapter 10, moving ahead just a little bit. And in chapter 10, Moses talks about obedience, same subject. Throughout the letter, he talks about obedience. But in chapter 10, he really frames it in light of obedience being a moral imperative. Why should I obey God? Because it's the right thing to do. God says, do it, and therefore we obey because it's a commandment of, of God. But here it's interesting. In chapter 6, he frames obedience in terms of the benefits of obedience. Namely, that obedience does something for me as well as honor God. It brings about blessing. Can I say it this morning? There is blessing in the life of the one who consistently obeys the word of God. And he says so in a couple of different ways. He said, first of all, it leads to prosperity. By obeying, you will be unlike the previous generation who majored in disobedience. Obedience is going to get you into the land. And it's not just any land. It's what kind of land? It's a good land. Flowing with what? Yeah, the word flowing is literally the word to ooze. Oozing with milk and honey. It's like a beehive when you take that honeycomb out and it's just dripping with that delectable honey. That's a statement of the, of the produce of the land, the, the fat of the land. It's an abundant land. It's a reminder that God's going to provide for them and he's going to provide for them really good. 
And so prosperity is a benefit. Personal well-being is another benefit here. Obeying God proves to be a healthy thing for the one who obeys God. Can I make a statement today? You'll sleep better if you live in obedience. When you sleep better, you're going to feel better. It's a healthy thing to obey God. Obedient followers of the Lord Jesus Christ tend to live longer. I mean, there's just something to that, knowing that you're in the center of the will of God. And while not everybody, I mean, it's a general rule. It's not always pinpoint. But I will say this, the one who obeys God consistently is going to enjoy life more than the one who doesn't. You'll, you want, guilt it won't be a big part of your life. Regret won't be a big part of your life. Can you imagine living a life with no regret, no remorse? And so obedience, let me, say, let me just say, you never lose when you decide to obey the Lord. Moses says at the end of chapter 5, do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk straight down the line because there are always blessings to those who obey and there are always consequences to those who rebel. The first mark of covenant faithfulness for the people of God, we obey God completely. Secondly, covenant faithfulness means that we love God deeply. Now, this is another subject we broached last week, and here Moses returns to it uh, even uh, more deeply than he did in chapter 10. This is an important passage of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Those of you who've studied the Bible for a good while know that to a Jew, this is the most important passage in the Bible right here, especially to an Orthodox Jew. It's still part of the daily prayers prayed twice a day for Orthodox Jew. They'll repeat this passage of Scripture twice a day, every day of their lives. It's that important to them. It's called the Shema, the Shema, S-H-E-M-A, which is a word that means to hear, which is the first word of verse 4, hear, O Israel. That's a stylistic device to capture attention. It's like Jesus' use in the King James Bible of verily, verily, I say unto you, set up straight, open your eyes, open your ears, and listen up, because what I'm about to say is hugely important, and that's the function of this phrase, hear, O Israel, which is used twice in the first nine verses of Deuteronomy 6. And the first word out of Moses' mouth, once he now has their attention, is the very name of God. Him say, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh. The personal name of God given to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. Translated in your English Bibles as the Lord. And in your English Old Testament, anytime you see that phrase, the Lord, where Lord is capitalized, that's the personal name of God, Yahweh, in the Hebrews. The first thing, hear, O Israel, Yahweh, the Lord. And what Moses says about the Lord speaks to two things, the uniqueness of God and the unity of God. Verse 4, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You probably are aware that most 
faithful Jews today and through the centuries have had a problem with Christianity because they believe that Christians are polytheistic. In other words, we worship multiple gods. Well, the thing about Christians is they worship three gods, and we worship one God. And they'll immediately go back to this text right here to support that. The Lord is one. And can I just say this morning, that's exactly what Orthodox Christians believe, that the Lord is one. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. Even the Apostle Paul said it, 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. Yet for us, for believing people who follow Jesus, for us, there is what? Say it out loud. There is one God, the Father, from whom we all exist. Now, having said that, our theology is unapolog uh, unapologetically and absolutely Trinitarian because that's what the Bible clearly teaches. In the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, one God who reveals himself in three personal and eternal distinctions, right? God the what? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, consistently taught throughout the Bible. So this is uh, an important statement. We do worship one God, and we do worship a God who is one, and that one God who is God is our God. Can I have an amen? He's a personal God, and that's said right here, the Lord, our God, that Lord, who is the only God, is one. And so this is just a critically important statement for Jew and Christian alike. Yahweh is one God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is the only God. Can I have an amen this morning? And with that, as a fundamental confession of faith, Moses then calls the people, live in a radical commitment to that one God, because there are no other gods. Live in a radical commitment to him that's marked by an obvious, demonstrable love for that God. This is the great commandment of Israel, and it's the great commandment of Christianity, as identified by Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 22. He quotes it right from here, Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Let's say that verse together. This is, these are the words of Christ quoted from Deuteronomy 6 together. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, and with all your might. And this, of course, is what God requires of his people. That was the language in chapter 10 we looked at last week. What does the Lord require of you? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, if you read through Deuteronomy, which I hope many of you are doing several times since it's taking us about 18 years to get through this book, count how many times Moses emphasizes that the people of God, the covenant chosen people of God, are to love God. Eight to ten times in Deuteronomy alone. And another many times where he reminds them that we love God because he has set his love on us. He's chosen us 
from before the foundations of the world. And a right response to God is to love him. And not just in a casual way, in a robust, full-throated kind of way. Because love is always obvious. When you, when you love something or somebody, it's going to be obvious. And my question this morning is, is your love for Christ obvious? Unmistakable. There's no doubt concerning the things that you love. I can walk in many of your homes and offices and you'll have pictures of somebody you love all over the place. Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you have any doubt that this pastor loves his grandboy? How do you know? Well, because I bore you with stories from the pulpit all the time. I've got another one. Let me tell well, maybe, maybe later. There's no doubt about it. He's on my lock screen on my phone. You don't want to ask me about him because I'm going to start reeling pictures off. Check this out. Check this out. Doesn't he look like his grandfather, you know? There's no doubt about it. This is the way we're to love God. So, are y'all with me so far? Say amen. Marks of covenant faithfulness. Consistent, constant obedience. Deep, robust love for God. So, in this passage of Scripture, we have, first, a great revelation. There is one God, the only God, and he's our God. And that great revelation is necessarily followed by a great response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that leads, finally, to a great responsibility. Namely, and third, Faithfulness means we communicate truth intentionally. That's a huge mark of covenant faithfulness. We obey God consistently. We love God deeply. We communicate truth intentionally. Why? Because our love for God is not meant to be hoarded. It's meant to be what? Shared. That's right. Given away. Look at verse 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these words that I command you today, that's a reference to the Ten Commandments, shall be upon your what? Shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, this statement here is just punctuated with active verbs, right? Teach, impress, talk, bind, write. What does that mean practically? for the people of God? How do you communicate the commands of God? How do you communicate the oneness and the uniqueness of God? How do you communicate your love for God to others? There are several observations I would make as we land the plane this morning. The first is the critical nature of teaching the truth of God, especially by parents to their children. Teach God's word in your family. That's the first thing that we learn. Worship and spiritual development always began at home. And covenant faithfulness is first and foremost a family matter. It's a family matter. Can I make a statement this morning? 
you may never graduated from law school, but your home is to be a law school. Not civil law, but the law of God. Are you training your children, your grandchildren in the law of God, the moral law of God, not the ceremonial law of God? It's a good thing to even train them in that. But how to live in a way that demonstrates that they love God, how to live in a way that knows what God has said and understands the importance of living in obedience to what God has said. This is critical because it's God's divine design for how we perpetuate the faith from generation to generation. I mean, the church has an important role, but the institution primarily responsible for perpetuating the faith from generation to generation isn't so much the church as it is the home. That's where spiritual truth is supposed to be ultimately communicated. We're here to support, we're here to nurture, we're here to develop, but the real teaching is supposed to take place in your own home. You shall teach them. Teach what? These commandments. Teach these commandments diligently to your children. And circle the word diligently or underline it. Not carelessly, not thoughtlessly, diligently, stridently, purposefully. In fact, if you're using a new international version of the Bible, it will say impress them upon your children. Almost like an old-fashioned typewriter with those metal keys slapping up against that paper. And what does it leave behind? An impression. Now, I'm not saying go home and pick up your family King James Bible and bash them over the head with it. That's not the best way to impress the truth of God upon your children. But the idea is the same, man. It's almost like taking a branding iron and impressing it on the hide of a steer. And it leaves behind this indelible mark that can never be removed. That's the way parents are to impress the truth of God upon their children. And they're to do it consistently throughout all the comings and goings of life. Did you notice that? Talk uh, of them when you sit in your house, when you're just hanging out. And when you walk by the way, when you're on the move, as you're going to soccer practice, as you're going to upward basketball, as you're taking them to school, coming home from school, when you lie down, read them those bedtime stories, pray with them, talk to them about the things of God before they go to bed. When they rise, as you're getting together for a new day at the breakfast table, leaving to go to school that morning, can I make a statement this morning? Christianity is not meant to be dabbled in. It's not meant to be dabbled in. You don't dabble in the Word of God. This verse implies something of a preoccupation with spiritual things, preoccupied with it. I mean, there are many people in our culture preoccupied with college. Man, college football got started yesterday. It's all you think about, some people. Think about, talk about stats, players, five-star recruits. There's this preoccupation. Oh, to God, that we had that kind of preoccupation with eternal things, with things that last forever. There's all kinds of ways to do this. We could do a veritable how-to I've told y'all before how important in our family having dinner together was at the table. Man, we did it like Ward and June Cleaver. We set the table, and we were committed to do that four nights a week at least, more if possible. 
And that's where we would unpack much of life. We did all kind of things. I mean, we would read to our kids, dialogue with our kids, uh, pray with them, of course, every day, imperfectly. I'm, I'm telling you, I think I, I look back today and, and there have been many times that I just told Judy, I jacked it up. I mean, I would do it so much differently now. This is the thing about being a parent. By the time you've got all this experience, it's over. They're gone. But you still have opportunities to impress it upon your children, even when they're 25, 30, 35, 40 years old. And so you do it, and you got to start early. You don't just take a 15 or 16-year-old and say, you know what, I just got revival. Sit down. I'm going to impress some stuff in your life. No. You're going to start early and make it a course of life, family discussions, Bible reading, games, songs, books. I mean, some people listen to stuff like this and they well, that sounds like indoctrination. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Indoctrination. Get the doctrine into them, people. Because if you don't indoctrinate your kids in the things of God at home, the streets will indoctrinate them with humanism and cultural wokeness, and they will do it with pinpoint accuracy. No, you do it at home. This is how you safeguard your children when you send them into the world. So get that doctrine in. And don't try to delegate it to anybody else. Not my job to train your kids. I'm here to help. It's not Jeremy Weidlich's job, not Melinda Madison's job, not Dustin Scott's job to train your children. They're here to help, to support you as the principal teacher of spiritual truth in your home. But it's your responsibility to do that. And your kids need to know who God is, how to love God, how to obey God, and why they need to love and to obey God. So teach God's word to your family. Second, grow in God's word personally. You need to grow in God's word personally. You know why? Because you can't teach what you don't know. You can't teach what you don't know. So you gotta commit to know God, to know God's word, to grow in God's word personally. <clears throat> As Paul says, in 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. And when we do this, of course, we do it not simply to increase in our knowledge, not to increase in our personal stature, but we do it as a witness. A witness to our kids, a witness to our spouses, a witness to our fellow believers, a witness to the world. Moses tells the people here in verse 8, you shall take these commands of God and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Many Jews have taken that literally. I've been on flights going into Israel before where when the sun comes up, these guys get up and they start strapping on the straps on their arms, binding the word to their arms. They put their phylacteries on their head with the little box right between their eyes that contains scripture from Exodus and Deuteronomy. And they go on about their business right there in front of everybody on the aircraft to see as, as we're working our way into the Holy Land. And so no question, Orthodox Jews have taken this somewhat literally 
and literally bind the word of God on parts of their body. But I'm not sure God intended this to be taken quite so literally. He says in verse six that these commands shall be upon your what? Shall be upon your heart. That's primary. In other words, that's how you bind the way you get it into your heart, right? Psalm 119, 11, thy word have I stored up in my heart that I might not sin against you. Listen, you can put it in a box between your eyes and tattoo the word of God all over your arms, but if it's not been circumcised on your heart, you're probably not gonna be much of a testifier in the world you live in. I, I don't so much have a problem with you doing those kinds of things as I do making sure that you back it up. I'm telling you, if you're gonna wear it, if you're gonna wear a cross dangling from your ears or around your neck, tattoo the word on your arm, I might counsel you not to do that, but that's another sermon for another day. But if you're gonna do it, you better, you better live it. You better back, or you'll do more harm than good in the kingdom of God. So remember, to love God is to obey God, and you can't obey what you don't know. To love God is to teach God's truth to your children, but you cannot teach what you do not know. For that, you need to grow in God's word personally as you as a disciple follow after Jesus Christ. And then finally, you testify to God's word in your community. You teach God's word to your family. You grow in God's word personally. You testify God's word to your community. Moses has used verbs like teach, impress, talk, bind. Here in verse 9, he uses another one. You shall what? Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Again, let me say it. Christianity is not a faith that's meant to be dabbled in. God demands that his followers be all in. So are you dabbling in it or are you all in to the kingdom of God? Paul, or Moses rather, has been emphasizing the individual, their teaching responsibility, their personal growth responsibility. Now he moves to the home itself. God's commands are to be written on the doorpost of their houses, even on the city gates whenever they come into the land of promise and they take the land and they begin to appropriate cities and begin to live as a theocracy where God is king of their land. Write them on the city gates. Let the whole community know who God is and where you stand <clears throat> with the Lord. Now, it's hard to know whether God intends for us to interpret this primarily literally or primarily figuratively, probably more so the latter, but having said that, let me just say, I think it's a really good thing uh, to physically post spiritual words and spiritual concepts on your home or on your walls or out in the yard. I think it's a great thing to do that. Now, you need to be respectful of your community covenants. Don't be a rabble rouser. But don't be afraid to post that scripture. Don't be afraid to post that cross don't be afraid to hang that biblical decorative art in your home. We got it all over the walls. Many of you have given us a lot of that stuff. Scripture's done in a magnificently beautiful way where anybody that walks into our house should be able to know that as for me and my house, 
We will serve the Lord. The point is to testify. Testify to your community who God is and what God means to you. Identify yourself as part of the covenant community of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I don't want people to think I'm some kind of fanatic. Really? Y'all flying those Florida state flags all over your property? Alabama paraphernalia everywhere? You've spent $1,200 on gear? And dare somebody to say something about it. Political hardware all over your car? I know what y'all drive. I know what you're posting on your car. Let me let you on on a little secret. People already think you're crazy. They already think you're crazy. So if, if, listen, if they're going to think you're crazy, go ahead and fly a flag that says Jesus is Lord. Go ahead and fly a flag with a big cross on it. Post it out there. Hang those scriptures on your door frame, on your wall. I'm telling you, if I'm going to go down as somebody that's loonier than Looney Tunes, I want to go down as somebody who is a fool for Christ and crazy about Jesus. Not for all this other mumbo-jumbo that don't amount to a hill of beans in the specter of eternity. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it and it alone is the power of God unto the salvation of everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to Gentiles just like me. I'm telling you, we've been blessed with the grace gifts of God. And none more important than a personal relationship with him and the truth of his eternal word. And for those who have been on the receiving end of grace, there is a responsibility to live in ways that honor and please the giver of all grace. And that involves a responsibility to openly and demonstrably love God, obey God, and testify to the greatness of God to people at home and all around you. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is risen. Jesus is coming again. Let's shout it boldly for the whole world to hear because these, brothers and sisters, are the marks of the covenant faithfulness of the people of the living God. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen. amen.